There's no physi- physiological parameter that will be as high as it can go at the moment when I fall off the treadmill. There's gonna, only going to be one thing that's as high as it can go, and that is my subjective perception of effort. That was Alex Hutchinson, and yes, he is my guest today on the Anonymous There podcast. Alex is a columnist for Outside Magazine and was a longtime writer for Runner's World. He is a regular contributor to the New York Times and author of at least three books. I found out about Alex from his New York Times bestselling book called Endure with the subtitle Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. It is an awesome and dense book that goes very deep into the science behind our mindset and endurance and why many times our body is not our limiting factor. In this episode, we get into the power of mindset and what part it plays in your body, what does your mind do when you want to quit, how to get past those moments, and four action steps on what to do when something is hard that I learned from Navy SEALs, and Alex gives his story on how these steps have been a long-standing practice taught by many coaches, but were often ignored for decades. This is episode one of two, as it went pretty long, and honestly, it could have kept going. I know you're going to love it, so this one especially, get up off that couch, get out and get moving, get on those shoes, and enjoy the genius of Alex Hutchinson. Welcome, Alex, to the Not Almost There podcast. Thanks a lot, Joe. I really appreciate you having me on. So you wrote this book, Endure, which uh, came out a few years back. And it was really the first time I read the, the science between mind over matter. What was the pivotal moment that intrigued you to start writing about the mental side of breaking down fitness or endurance barriers? Yeah, well, there, there's a few pivotal moments. I, 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 I guess I had a pivotal moment as an athlete. So I was, I was a, a middle distance runner for the, for the Canadian te- national team. And I think anyone who competes in any sport, you know, wrestles this battle between uh, mind and body on a continuous basis. You're like, I'm capable of doing this, but sometimes you don't achieve what you think you can or whatever. So I had a race back in uh, 1996, I guess it was, when I was a, a junior in college where I had a, a huge breakthrough, which, and, and to, to sort of uh, cut to the chase of the story, basically in, in, in track racing, you have a guy who stands at the finish line reading out the, your, your times for each lap so you know how fast you're going. And I had, I had a race where the guy was reading out the wrong times. He, was, he had missed the start, and so he was calling out times that were three seconds off. And I had an enormous breakthrough. I ran a race, I, I, 1,500 meters, which is about a mile. I, I had a nine-second personal best, which is after after running like the same times for about three or four years. And it totally changed the trajectory of my career, um, totally changed what I thought I was capable of. And it was because uh, this guy had basically fooled me into thinking I was going way faster than I was. So that, I think, was the athletic trajectory. I don't. I didn't see it at the, t- at the time as a turning point. Later, as a journalist, when I was trying to understand the, the science of, of fitness uh, or, or of, of endurance, I sort of reached back and, and realized that that was the moment when I started getting interested in, in it. But there was still a lot of, um, I, I didn't realize that, the, the, you know, how important that was until I got into some of the research and discovered what scientists were, were looking into and trying to understand this sort of mind, mind-body balance. And up until that point, you were... 
you were struggling to break through a, um, your record on, was it the, at that time, was it the 1500? Yeah. So I was trying to break four minutes for 1500 meters. That's about 17 seconds slower than a four minute mile. So I, I sort of think of it as a poor man's four minute mile barrier. And the interesting thing was I ran like 402 in my, when I was 15 or something, when I, my second year of running in high school. And then I ran 401 the next year and I ran 401 the year after that and four flat. So I really had the sense that I was sort of approaching that asymptote of like my physical limits. And, and this is how we think of physical challenges, right? Like, uh, I guess I'm, I'm approaching the limits of what my heart and lungs can do in the same way that, uh, you know, if I go into the weight room and see how much I can lift, there's going to be a point where I'm like, okay, th th this is what my muscles are capable. I don't have any more muscles. And so I really had this mechanistic sense of the body as a machine and that I was getting close to the limits of a machine. And so I wanted to run 359 and I was confident I could run 359 because I had run four flat basically. Um, but I didn't think I could run 352, which is what I ran in that, that uh, breakthrough race. And, and after the breakthrough race, a few weeks, you know, within months I had run 344. So I had gone from feeling like, I'm right at the limits of what my of, of my what my personal body is capable of. To I'm in a totally different category, and I've I've completely leapt to a different level, and my body hasn't changed. In fact, my workouts hadn't changed. So it was clear that something had happened in the way I I sort of. Uh, the way my brain was controlling my body, it wasn't that I had gained, you know, my heart hadn't grown by 50% or anything like that, or my muscles or anything like that. It was, it was, it was definitely something in the head that had changed. And when you, at, at that time, were you doing research or were you talking to peers to try to get advice on what had changed? I, outside I from you thinking know, you just pushed through? Yeah. I, 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 you know, I definitely wanted to, to be able, if I could have bottled whatever that, that transformation was, and I was very curious about it. But at the time, my, let me put this in context. Uh, we had a sports psychologist who worked with, I, with, uh, with our college team at university, and nobody, including me, took it seriously. We, we thought that was just, you know, the, the, the best joke ever. She would give us these, like, mantras we were supposed to repeat, and we thought, we thought that was hilarious. Um, and so to the extent that I wanted to understand what, you know, the nature of my limits, um, I, I was reading books about the science of running and I had, you know, one of my teammates was doing his master's degree in exercise physiology. And so I was trying to learn about VO2 max and lactate threshold and all these things that, you know, in one version of trying to understand human limits, if you measure the VO2 max and lactate threshold and running economy, there's an equation. You can plug that in and you can say, this is how fast you're capable of running a marathon or a mile or whatever the case may be. Um, and, and so that, that was, and that's, that's the way my mind works. I, I'm a very, uh, uh, I'm not so, I'm not big on the whole feelings and, and, you know, if you believe you could achieve, I, I, I'm big on like, okay, let's measure the parameters, plug it into the equation and figure out what the limits of this system are. And so it, it, it took me a long time just because of who I am and because of the way um, physiology and limits were discussed at that time to sort of come around to the idea that, no, 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 we, we really have to understand the brain, not just as this extra thing that maybe holds you back if you choke or whatever, but as integral part. The, when, whenever you do something, it's, it's your, your brain and your muscles together deciding what you're capable of doing. So I, I was resistant to that. And, 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 you know, 
maybe I'm slower than most. That's why it took me sort of 10 years before I, after that race, before I was like, what does this mean? What, how, how do we incorporate, how do we explain this in a more realistic way? I know reading the book, you call it like the central governor. When you talk about VO2 max, lactate threshold, running economy, and those, those components that make up an equation to essentially predict like how fast and if you can complete a, a race. And I want to dive into how people can improve those in a few minutes and really dive deep, deep into that. But up until that point, was there research that you found or since discovered after the fact, after that had happened to you to substantiate your increase in speed and you breaking through those thresholds? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there, there's a, there's a sort of coincidence in timing, which is that my breakthrough race was 1996. And that, as it turns out, I didn't know at the time, but as it turns out, 1996 was the year that a, a researcher named Tim Noakes from the University of Cape Town in South Africa, he gave a really important speech at the annual conference of the American College of Sports Medicine, where he basically said, look, we've got this obsession with VO2 max and, and, and you know other things like that. And it just doesn't give us the whole picture. It doesn't explain how things work. We need to look elsewhere. And, and that led to, he then coined the term a couple years later, coined a term, the, the central governor model, this idea that actually when you reach your limits, it's not that your muscles can't go any farther. It's that there's a governor that this in your, some, some function of your brain is saying, you know what, this is far enough under the current circumstances. We're going to, we're going to call it quits at this point. And maybe that can change if the lion jumps out from behind a tree and starts chasing you. But for, but it's, it's a, a brain's decision. So this was happening at the same time, but it hadn't spread. It was, um, well, okay. If you were an exercise physiologist at this conference in 1996, where Tim Noakes gave this speech, you knew about it because it was a hugely controversial speech. He basically, he, he, you know, he was giving the keynote lecture, the, the big lecture on exercise physiology. And he basically said, our major theories for the last century are totally incomplete. We're idiots. We've been trapped in this in this same paradigm. And it became very unpopular and extremely controversial. I would say from the mid-90s until the you know the mid 2000s like you know 2005 2006 uh it was this very minority view uh sort of cranks and and uh, uh it was it was viewed as 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 crazy uh, and then it gradually started to a- attract more adherence and and has become i would say more the dominant view in exercise physiology now that 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 uh it maybe not in the in the words the essential governor model but the idea that if you're talking about the limits of the physical limits of the human body, you have to find some way of incorporating the, uh, the brain. And the, the, the one other thing I should say, given that you asked the question is, um, you know, if you had a time machine and went back to 1950 or 1900 or whatever, everyone always understood, everyone who ever competed in any sport or, or, you know, push themselves physically, everyone understood that there's something that, that there's brain as well as body. Uh, you know, no, no one ever thought that we're just like kind of robots and that, you know, if I'm capable of running a mile in four flat, I will go out and every time I run four flat and it doesn't matter how motivated I am. It doesn't matter if there's a crowd cheering. It doesn't matter if I'm nervous. Everyone knew that these factors do matter, but it was kind of viewed as an add on. It's like, the body is capable of X and, and really people viewed the mind as like something that could screw it up if you got nervous or if you didn't execute well, as opposed to, um, you know, so the mind dictated how, whether you got to your limits and the revised view is like, 
you are never going to your full physical limits. You are never running to the point where you keel over and die, at least, you know, with rare, 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 rare exceptions. And so anytime, even in the Olympic marathon, you're sprinting for the gold medal, you lose by one second, you don't keel over and die. You put your hand on your knees, you breathe hard for a few minutes or, you know, a few seconds, then you jog off. Your legs still work, your heart still works, everything still works. So it was your brain that said you can't go any, any farther or any faster. Why does it vary so much from person to person in terms of your, your mindset on what you can and can't do? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a million dollar question there. That, um, I, I think for sure part of it is, um, so, okay, let me, let me rewind and say, yeah, there are some people who are able to squeeze more out of the lemon than others, right? And, you know, you can just see that standing at the finish line of a race that some people have pushed themselves to the, you know, near death and other people are just like, eh, that was a, you know, I'm done now. I, I think there's a whole a mix of things. I think all of us learn to get better, you know, if we, if we choose to, to follow that path. Like the, the, the example I give often is, is uh, let's say you take someone who decides to run their first 5K, they have not been doing any running. They're going to get off off the couch, and in three months or six months or whatever the case is, they're going to run a five k with their friends. They start out. They're they're going out for a, uh, you know, a, a, they try to go for a run. They can run for thirty seconds or for a minute, and then they're like, "Oh my god, my legs are burning, and I'm breathing so hard, I'm going to have a heart attack. I need to stop and walk." Uh, and over the course of six months, this miracle happens that they get fitter and fitter, and they're able to actually run a full five k. So what has happened? We know that there's a bunch of physical things that have happened. We know that they. Um, uh, you know, their heart got stronger and their muscles got stronger and yada, yada. But uh, there's this really underappreciated side that they're also getting better at pushing themselves. They're learning to tolerate discomfort. They're learning to be familiar with discomfort. So that feeling that they got on their first run where they were like, ah, 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 I'm going to have a heart attack. They realize I'm not having a heart attack. I'm just out of breath. Like it, that doesn't mean I have to stop. It means I can't keep going forever. It's a warning sign, but it's not a stop sign. And so not only are they fitter, but they're also holding their finger in that flame for a little bit longer and a little bit closer to the flame because they've become comfortable with it and they've become familiar with it. So people who, who grow up playing sports, uh, they may go through practices, you know, on a daily basis for years and years where they get uncomfortable. And so, and, and th they lose their fear of that feeling of discomfort. And so they can, they're, they're more able to get into that sort of mindful mindset, that non-judgmental self-awareness where you're, you're aware of that sensation. It doesn't feel good, but you're also not reacting emotionally to it or not getting, not scared of it. So I think that sort of life, uh, trajectory thing is, is something that happens for a lot of people. And either it happens as a natural course of you played sports in high school. And so you were exposed to it or whatever, or it happens deliberately. People work on exposing themselves to discomfort uh, they, they work on getting better at, at dealing with it and not panicking and, and accepting it. Uh, and then the third component is, are some people born, you know, what, is there like early life experience or is there actually just some, you know, genetic, some people are, are, are born willing to suffer more than others. I don't know the answer to that. I, I would guess probably yes. Like there's just, people are different, right? So, um, there's probably a mix of all those things, but the key thing is wherever anyone is right now, that's not like their their permanent set point. You, these are these are things that change. Even if you study elite athletes and you look at, for instance, pain tolerance, how much are they willing to suffer? Uh, these are people who've been training for you know a decade at least. It it waxes and wanes over the course of a training season. They're 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 willing to handle more pain 
uh, around the time of a major competition than they are in the middle of their off season. So it's, it's something that it's not just like you flick a switch and now you know how to handle discomfort or push your limits uh, or whatever. It's something you're constantly learning and relearning and, and, you know, hardening yourself to. With the, uh, with the book, I know you don't end it with any definitive, here's the percentage that the mind plays in performance. But if you had to just take a, uh, I guess anecdotally from, you know, the book was published a few years ago. You've talked to a ton of people since there's been more research. What part does the mind play in getting through something or performing at the highest level possible? Yeah. <laughs> the, the unanswerable question. Um, I think it depends on the context and, and I know that's a cop out, but let me, let me put it this way. If you, gave me a hundred people randomly selected off the street and said, I want you to predict what order they're going to finish in, in a marathon. And you can gather what, you know, whatever information you think is the most important. I'm going to take them to an exercise physiology lab. I'm going to put them on a treadmill. I'm going to measure their VO2 max, their lactate threshold, their running economy. And those three parameters are going to give me most of what I need. Like, sure. Some of them are going to be tough. Some of them are going to be weak, but in, in a group of people that with totally with with a very broad range of physical abilities, the physical capacity is is what's going to make the biggest difference in how they perform. Now it's a totally so so in that in that context, I'm saying it's like whatever ninety five percent physical and five percent mental or whatever. You know, I'm 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 ballparking numbers here. Switch it over to now you now you you take me to. Tokyo this summer or whatever, you take me to the Olympics, you give me a hundred marathoners and you, but you, I, I don't know their names. I don't know their past history. You're just like, okay, based on what information you can gather, can you predict the finishing times? The lab's going to tell me nothing. All of these guys have great VO2 max. They all have great running economy. They all have great lactate threshold, whatever. They, they, just to get to the Olympics, they've, they all have the physical tools. Now, how are we going to choose, uh, you know, who, who's going to win the race. I don't have a magical mental, uh, you know, measure their toughness tool, but to the extent that you can do it with, uh, you know, psychological questionnaires and things like that, that's going to play a much bigger role. Now I'm saying it's like 50% mental and 50% physical capacity or something, you know, it, the physical stuff still matters for sure. But w among evenly matched people, which in most competitions, right, you, you, nobody tunes in to watch, you know, the heavyweight boxer versus the 90 pound weakling. Everyone, you, you, we arrange physical, comp, you know, athletic competitions such that it's, you know, people who are roughly evenly matched physically. And then I think the mental plays a much bigger role. You know, it's like, I mean, I guess it's sort of that Yogi Berra stuff. It's like, you know, 90% mental and the, you know, or I can't even remember what the, what the quote is where it's, it adds up to more than hundred percent because it's, mm -hmm. you absolutely have to have the physical capacity. You, it, it, it's not enough no matter how tough you are, if you don't have the physical capacity, it's like you, you can't will yourself to be an NBA center if you're not, you know, six foot 10 or whatever, right? Like the, the, the mental toughness just doesn't enter into it if you don't have the, the physical capacity. But once you're there, it's not enough to, it, like you have to have both. So in that sense, it's like 80% mental and 80% physical or whatever. And probably the same thing's true for the person that doesn't exercise or run, right? And, and, if you take that same group of people, you take the lowest performing, 
folks on the, the VO2 max running economy lactate threshold scale that probably won't perform well. I, I bet it comes down to the 50-50 mindset as, as well, or even more at that point, to, because you're not used to doing anything, maybe. I think you're right. Yeah. That's like, yeah, within any group that's relatively evenly matched. And so, yeah, if you take a bunch of people who all, who have all been sitting on the couch for the last 10 years, some of them are just willing to suffer. And, and, you know, there, there's examples of, of, uh, there's, you know, I, I, I hear of examples now and then of people who are like, yeah, I decided to run a hundred miler and, you know, no, I hadn't done much training before, but, you know, uh, I just wanted to do it. And, and, People, some people can go out and do that. And it's like, you could take highly trained runners, like really, really elite milers or even marathoners. And a lot of them would just, you know, and probably including me, would, would you know, fold badly if you tried to put them through a hundred miler. One of those things where you're out for, you know, 18 hours or whatever, like you know, 24 hours. Um, whereas you could take some people who are, you uh, you know, who don't have that training, who are, who have no business doing well at it, if they're willing to suffer. And and I guess another sort of way of splitting it up is like in the hundred meters or, or, you know, you have to be mentally tough, right? Like there's a lot of pressure, but you can't tough, you know, there's no amount of toughness that allows you to run sub 10 seconds for a hundred meters. If you don't have the muscles in a hundred miler, it's a totally different ballgame. And the longer the event, the more time you have to think, the less it becomes about what's your maximum capacity and the more it is about how, how willing are you to keep going. I don't know if you, like, I, I watched, what was it, the, um, the World's Toughest Race or whatever, Eco Challenge they had uh, on, mm-hmm. on yeah. uh, Amazon Prime last, last fall. And it's like, you know, this is a race that's like two weeks long or whatever. And it's not about how many pull-ups you can do or how fast you can run a mile. It's like, okay, you haven't slept in three days. You're, you know, you're, you've, been, you've, you, you've been covered in mud and leeches. Uh, you're completely exhausted. Are you willing to go out and do another eight hours, you know, stretch? And, and that's, yeah, I think that's, so short versus long uh, and experience versus inexperience, training versus train. You can, you can find all these different ways of, of, of bringing up the, the role of the mind or up the role of the body. But uh yeah, the, but the actual numbers are very, very, very hard to, to nail down. And when you're running or exercising or doing whatever you're doing, you're facing that adversity, you want to stop. I heard you mention on another show, another podcast, that if you had to go sprinkle fairy dust and go back in history and, and say, okay, here's what I would have done different. It was more of the positive self-talk. This was, yeah. a, I think, a few years back. Is that, is that still in line with your thinking? It, absolutely. And, and going back to something I was saying earlier, it's like this is, this is something that's hard for me. It has been hard for me to, to kind of swallow. It's, it's because this is, you know, the sports psychologist that worked with my college track team in the 90s, she was trying to teach us positive self-talk and, and its opposite, which is negative, stopping negative thoughts. She taught us this five-part thing. If, you, if, you have, if you're having a negative thought, you have to recognize it. Uh, you have to then refuse to, to continue to thinking it, to let it dominate your thoughts. Recognize, refuse, then you relax, reframe your thoughts in a more positive way, and resume your activity. You recognize, refuse, relax, reframe, resume. We memorized it, but we didn't, we didn't actually implement it. We didn't think it was that big a deal. Um, so, cause, so I am sort of like 
skeptical of like, oh yeah, if you believe you can achieve. But I'm also willing to look at the evidence and, and, and over the last few years, there've been, or let's say over the last five years or so, there've been some really interesting studies saying, okay, let's test this. Let's, okay, it, sound, it makes sense. It sounds like it should work, but let's, let's take a bunch of people, give them a physical test, give half of them positive self-talk training and uh, test them again. And it's like, yeah, this, the self-talk actually improves your physical limits. And I think it's worth sort of maybe pausing to uh, to say to, to ask why should we think this works? And and the answer is going back to what we were talking about at the top. Like, if you're trying to understand the what is your actual limit, what stops you? If I if I go out and run as let's, let you put me on a treadmill, set the speed at a given speed, and say, okay, Alex, run till you fall off. Uh, what is the point at which I fall off? What what can we measure that will tell me I have hit my physical limit? Well, if you do it, it's, it's actually, that's actually a much harder question than you think. Because when I fall off the back of the treadmill, my heart rate won't be at my max. My VO2 max, my, my, my uh, oxygen consumption won't be at max. My lactate levels won't be max. There, there's no physi- physiological parameter that will be as high as it can go at the moment when I fall off the treadmill. There's gonna, only going to be one thing that's as high as it can go, and that is my subjective perception of effort. So, and it's not even my pain. If you ask me to rate my pain when I fall off the back of the treadmill, it might be five out of 10 or six out of 10. So it's hurting, but it's not maxed out. But if you ask me how hard is it to continue, the effort is the, the struggle to continue against a mounting desire to stop. And if you rate that on a scale of one to 10, then the moment before I fall off the back of the treadmill, that is the, the one single solitary parameter that will be maxed out. And this is a subjective perception of effort. Now, it depends on all the physical stuff. It depends on the pain I feel. It depends on lactate levels, heart rate, temperature, all these things. But it also depends on how, how I'm feeling about things, how optimistic I am, how much sleep I got last night. So that's where positive self-talk can, it can't change your heart rate. It can't change your lactate levels, but it can change your subjective perception of how close you are to that 10 out of 10 effort. So once I understood that, Argument, which is which is an argument that grows out of the the Tim Noakes central governor model that I talked about earlier. It's a sort of continuation of that idea that effort is really what matters. Then it's like, oh wait, yeah. If I'm sitting there saying, "This sucks. I cannot do this. This I, I this is so stupid. Why did I try this in the first place?" I'm like, I'm going to rate my effort a little higher. I'm going to be like, "Yeah, this sucks. I, I'm I already feel like I'm at nine out of ten. Whereas if I'm saying this is hard, but this is how it's supposed to feel. And everyone else probably feels just as bad or worse than I do. This is what I've trained for. I can do this. Then the exact same physiological state, I'm going to say, oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's okay. This is what it's supposed to feel like. This is seven out of 10. It's seven and a half out of 10. And I'm going to keep going for longer. I'm going to go faster. So that, that's the kind of, the, the argument that convinced me that it's plausible. And then the experimental evidence says, hey, it actually really works. People do go longer when they learn to reject the, the sort of this sucks, I should quit and replace it with, you know, keep pushing. I, this is what I signed up for. You, you're a very well-known runner. You've been an amazing athlete your entire life, but you've also wrote for a decade plus on sports science and you've talked to and witnessed some of the most elite runners in the world. Have you asked them this question of the positive self-talk that they say to themselves or any sort of mantras or any pre-race rituals? Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because, yeah, because I'm writing articles, I, I, you know, I wish I had, uh, I, I always like, so what is the right, you know, 
What is the right thing <laughs> yeah. to say? And everyone I ask has a different answer. I mean, there's some themes, but it's like, the problem is, if you, the, the things that sound right to, to one person can sound hopelessly like hokey or cliched to another person. And it's not going to work if you feel self-conscious, you're, you're, you're running along or you're going along doing whatever, doing your thing. And you're saying, you know, uh, you know, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. <laughs> like, you know, you're like, oh God, I'm, I'm an idiot. You have to have something that that uh, that works for you. But and and the other th- the other th- key thing is it depends on. It's not just one thing you say over and over the whole time. You need to think about the specific context. So in the running context, you might have one thing that you're telling yourself at the beginning of the race, and and generally you hear a lot of people that are like, it's like, you know, stay relaxed, be patient you know, that's supposed to, you know, keeping your mind off things. Halfway, uh, two thirds of the way when things are getting tough, that's a whole different uh, uh, ball game. And then towards the end, like you don't want to be saying, you know, I'm an animal, you know, look, I hear me roar <laughs> halfway through the race because you're going to take off and, and, and you know, uh, I, don't, I say this politely, you're, you're, you're going to um, exhaust your resources before you should. And at the end, you want something different. At the end, you really want to be scraping the bottom of the barrel and pushing yourself out. So, I mean, yeah, I'm trying to think of like specific examples from specific people because I have asked a lot of people and I've written about it. And they just tend to be things like, you know, you've trained for this. This is what you want. There's no place else I'd rather be. Um, I've done the work. That's a really good source of confidence because really what it comes down to in some senses is convincing yourself that you're you're capable of continuing to push, convincing yourself that you're not crazy you're not going to die. You're not going to blow up. And so a great source of confidence is the work you've done before. So if you've trained hard, you want to remind yourself of the, of, of the work you've done that, mean, that makes it possible for you to keep going in this particular case. So people, a lot of runners I've talked to, they're like, yeah, remember the work. You know, I, I, I trained to be here. I belong here. There's also a sense, you know, of, you know, people have that imposter syndrome, right? They're, they're, especially if you're competing against you know, moving up to a new level, competing against people you've admired. It's always like, oh, what am I doing here? I can't, I can't, I shouldn't be here. Um, and so you have to remind yourself, yeah, I belong here. I've earned my way to be here. I, I, this is where I should be. And I've done the work to, that's necessary to be here. This is fascinating to me. So I want to dive just a little deeper into that. So that is it better to not have the negative thoughts or you can't really control what you're thinking, but to not utter like a negative um, response to what's going on or how you're feeling, or is it better just to fill that area or room with positivity? Because what, what I've also heard is that your tongue is a, is a rudder for your body, right? And if you speak out loud, say, oh, yeah, I've six miles left and it's in this negative context and you're speaking out loud, you're kind of already telling yourself subconsciously that I'm going to quit this or, and you're going to make it harder on yourself. And just to elaborate on the title of this podcast, Not Almost There, was from when I ran this my first marathon in 2015 and I had recovered from back surgery a few years before that and I never thought I could run a marathon. And I'm running it, Alex, and I'm, I'm halfway through this marathon and I'm like feeling great. I'm like, this is a marathon. I could run two of these. And I've, I trained for it. I mean, I didn't train crazy, but I did my long runs and whatnot. And at mile 13, this guy holds up the sign and says, not almost there. <laughs> and it just crushed me. And I was like, no. And, I, and that sign got in my head. 
so bad that every mile after that was harder. And mile 20 became near impossible. And then mile 21, then I'm having cramps. And I started to manifest all of these physical things from that sign in my, in my mind. So I'm wondering, like, is it, like, when you see something like that, you smile, you laugh it off, and use that to fuel yourself and not like, let those negative thoughts, or if they come and let them pass by, or is it, is it better to just kind of fill that space with positivity? It's a great question because the danger of, of what I've been saying is, is that you sort of pathologize all negative thoughts. And so then you're out there and you have a negative thought and you're like, oh God, I screwed up. And now I'm, I'm, I'm going to, you know, it's going to be hard. The, the truth is, like you said, we can't always control what comes into our heads, whether it comes from someplace inside or whether it comes from some jerk on the sideline who's holding up a sign like that. And so I think it's important, you know, th- there's that sort of famous quote of like, or, you know, don't think of a white bear like that you're going to, you're guaranteed to think of a white bear. So if you're obsessed with like, can't have any negative thoughts, uh, that's not good. I think you need to accept and be, it's, uh, I think the, the, the way to think about this is that ideally you want your thoughts to be filled with confidence and positivity. In reality, that's not going to be a hundred percent the case. And so there's two, there's two prongs we can take. One is that you practice, like you practice, you, you come up with, here's what I want to think at, uh, be thinking about at halfway. Here's what I want to be thinking about at the 20 mile mark. Here's, and you, and you, in training, you practice. So that it be, they become like a mantra that's something that you repeat over and over again, that in a sense crowds out the space for negative thoughts because you're busy thinking that, but you also accept that that process is not going to be perfect and you're going to have negative thoughts. And you acknowledge and accept those. I guarantee, even if you were like a black belt, kung fu positive motivational thinker, at mile 20 of a marathon, you're going to have negative thoughts. And it's not just because there's something wrong with your head. It's because your body is, is you know, destroying itself. So it's okay to have negative thoughts. And you want to just sort of acknowledge that they're there and then let and try and let them pass by. And then, you know, like this is it's always easier to talk about these things than it is to do them. Yeah. You know, so you're going to get, you're going to sometimes get hung up on it. Like, I, I really don't think I can make it. My leg is falling off. I think my, I think my foot just fell off back there. Uh, acknowledge that, say this is a normal part of the, of the process. Maybe do a, you know, you do a reality check. It's like, is there something seriously medically wrong with me? No. Okay. I can keep going. Then let's get back. I trained for this. And, and not only have I trained for the discomfort, I've trained to be, expect the negative thoughts to expect the despair this despair is normal this despair is what everybody else is feeling and so i'm just going to keep going i'm ready for it so yeah i I don't i don't think you can suppress them entirely you want to like you said kind of crowd them out but also you want to be ready for them and just accept them and let them exist and then let them just drift into the background one one thing that i found that helps with regards to those negative thoughts they usually stem from some sort of pain you're feeling or perception of pain. And I, I close my eyes for a second. I'm like, what am I actually feeling right now? And I try and like, just dive deep into, am I really feeling pain in my legs? Or it's just, I feel like my leg muscles are working and just kind of shifting that mindset of what you're feeling seems to help me at least a bit. I think that's really an interesting point. There, there has been some research that actually since the book came out that I've, I've, there, there's a uh, pain psychologist named Kevin Altshuler 
who's at the University of Washington, who's done some really interesting research with ultra endurance athletes, with people running like these desert ultra marathons, also with a guy who rode across the Atlantic and working on, and he looks at like pain coping strategies. And there are some that are really good and some that are really destructive. And, and the one that the most common thing, the most common trap people fall into is pain catastrophizing. So you start feeling, you're running along the marathon, you start feeling, your, let's, you know, your, your, your calf or something like that. And you start to think, I can't keep going. My calf is, is uh, hurting. And if you do what, what you're talking about, you say, okay, well, let's stop. What am I actually feeling? Okay, my calf hurts every time it lands. Does it hurt so badly that you can't continue? No. Then what's the problem? Well, if you, if you sort of follow that thought, you realize, I'm worried that if it hurts like this now, then in a mile, it's going to hurt twice as badly. And in two miles, I'm going to die. And, and so you're panicking, not because of how it feels now, but because of how, what you were worried it means for two miles down the road. Now, sometimes that's completely rational. Like sometimes, you know, you start, you feel that twitch and you're like, I think I'm going to get a cramp and you do get a cramp. And it's like, okay, you, you were right to worry about it. But for the most part, we tend to over catastrophize. And if you can do what you're doing and just focus on what do I feel now? Is it tolerable? Yes. Then, then keep going as opposed to, and, and divorce it from that feeling of, what am I going to, oh my God, what does this mean? What will it be like in a mile or five miles or 10 miles? Then what, what this guy, Kevin Elshuler found, he, he, you know, he measured people or assessed people's pain coping strategies. And he, he, he gave them basically a six point score on the use of negative pain coping strategies like uh, pain catastrophizing. And for every one point that people increased on that score, they were three times as likely to drop out of the race, uh, the, these, these marathons. So in other words, the more you, you, obsess about what could be happening or what the what you know what what this might mean instead of just how it feels right now the more likely you are to to give up you know understandably because you're 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 panicked about what could happen and where isn't that true for in life you know like if you're starting a business or anything it's self-fulfilling you know it's hard not to 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 worry about you know well this oh god i've got one complaint does this mean everyone's going to be you know coming after me or yeah exactly we're we're yeah i mean you have to be planning ahead and, and, and catch and, and, you know, thinking about what, what, what the future holds, but you don't want to let it paralyze you anytime there's a negative uh, signal. As far as, um, pre race or prep strategy that I've been lucky enough and blessed enough to work and train with Navy SEAL type folks over the years. And, and a few things that I've learned is visualizations, huge, having micro goals and then breathing um, and then positive self-talk. Those were like the four kind of pillars. And um, I'm training for an ultra Spartan race. And I've never done an ultra in my life. I've done the, the run one marathon. And I'm trying to visualize exactly like what I'm going to go through. And I'm already starting and it's five months from now to pretend like I was there. And it's already, I already am feeling more confident in doing that. I guess my, my question on that is, have you seen that workers, they're, did did you use some of those um, those tactics in the past, or have you met folks that have? It, it, it's interesting because one of the sort of funny things about the the research that I was digging into it, and these these scientists doing new studies on how do we how do we push back limits, it's like it ends up coming back to like, oh yeah, this is what sports psychologists were saying in the nineteen seventies, and they hadn't they didn't have the underlying research to explain why they thought it worked. But the truth is that athletes have, have, have always kind of 
found the techniques, gift, you know, have intuited what works. And, and what was interesting for me is after Endure came out, I, I ended up going to a lot of conferences and talking to a lot of people. And the people who, like, in, in some sense got it or already knew all, all of that were people from the special forces communities. I met a lot of people and they're like, yeah, this is what our training focuses on. It's like the, the guys who show up for, you know, for, for training, they don't need like, here's how to do a pull up or, you know, okay. They learn stuff about breath holding for sure, especially if you're a seal, but, um, the, the whole training process is all about breaking down the, or not the whole, but a large part of the training process is about understanding that at that moment when you've been sleep deprived for, for three days and you're, you're exhausted and you're tired and you're hungry, that just because you feel like absolute crap doesn't mean you can't just get up and march another 20 miles. Like your body is capable of it and you, and, and they're trying to learn how to unshackle themselves from the brain's very well-meaning protective mechanism. Your, your brain is trying to do you a favor by saying, if you're that tired, if you're that beat up, you should just crawl, curl up in a ball and go to sleep. And sometimes we want to be able to override that. So special forces troops have, <laughs> I mean, that is, that is their, one of their most important focuses. And the things they come up with look a lot like what successful Olympic athletes have, have come up with. And so stuff like visualization, that I would say visualization for me, like, and I, you know, my, my sense is visualization is, is a lot like, is, is kind of where uh, self-talk was a decade ago where people in the field know it works. Uh, it's been around for a long time. It doesn't yet have the, the and, and, and people have tried to study it, but it's very hard to study these things. It's not like you, it's studying a, a supplement, right? Where you can give a placebo right. and the real pill and see what works. You, you can't trick someone into, either they visualized or they didn't, and they know whether they visualized, and so they know whether it's supposed to work. It's very hard to do good studies of it. But my sense is people are, are, are just starting to try and put the, the, the kind of scientific underpinning. And the reason that's important, because you could say like, well, who cares? We know it works. So, you know, why, why do the eggheads want, want to do, have to feel there has to be studies on it? Well, the, the reason is because you want to be able to understand, like, what type of visualization is most useful? How much is most useful? One of the, one of the questions is, I remember there was a study on visualization, it's, it's probably like 10 years ago, that found people who, they, they were like visualizing muscle, muscle contractions over and over. And then they tested maximum strength and they were actually tired. Like they, 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 by, by firing up the sort of neuromuscular patterns, even without using the muscles, they had created fatigue. And so you could sort of ask, at what point is, how much visualization is too much? How much, you know, if you're, if you're focusing on, uh, you know, visualizing extreme discomfort and pain, at what point are you just leaving yourself tired? When should you stop visualizing? What, anyway, so there's lots of questions you can ask about how to optimize it. And that's where the science is helpful. But to me, uh, you know, 100%, no question, um, it's, a, it's a powerful and valuable tool. And part of it is it's like getting back to this idea of like, when you get in the, in the moment where you're feeling discomfort, does it take you by surprise and knock you over? Or is it like, I've been here, I know what this feels like. This is what I expected. And it, this is what I expected because I've done this before, but also because I've visualized this moment a hundred times and I've visualized all the things that could go wrong. I mean, that's another big question in research is like, is it better to, to only visualize things going perfectly or is it better to visualize 
problems as they occur, so you know how you're going to handle it. There's a there's that, I should give I should mention there's a book that's coming out in June by a sports psychologist named Noel Brick. Um, it's called The Genius of Athletes. It's by Noel Brick and Scott Douglas, who's a longtime uh, running reporter, and it's basically trying to take the sports psychology techniques used by athletes and broaden them and say, how does this apply, apply to life? And one of the things they talk about in that book was like Michael Phelps's visualization protocol. And one of the things he visualized was like, imagine everything that could go wrong. Imagine that going wrong and then visualize kick by kick, stroke by stroke, how I will handle that moment. And so one of the things he had visualized multiple times was what happens if I'm in the Olympic final and my goggles come off and then I can't see. And that happened, apparently, in one of his Olympic races. I can't remember which one it was. Yeah. And he had visualized it so often, he was like, I'm ready for this. He counted his strokes, so he couldn't see where the end of the pool was, but he knew exactly how many strokes to go, You know, did his turn, touched off perfectly, and won the race. And so, anecdotally, you can say, oh, well, yeah, so it makes sense to visualize all the things that can go wrong. But then you ask yourself, well, what kind of life is that if you spend if you lie in bed every night visualizing everything going wrong it, it, it maybe you can end up depressed so I, I, there's a lot of interesting like subtleties of like in what context is it better to focus on the positive focus on the negative how often do you do it so yeah i think i think there's still lots of open questions but i i'm 100% on board with that yeah i i have a simple story how i figured visualization so basic but it's it's the opposite of things going wrong i was i remember just being uh, grounded when I was a kid, like like third, fourth grade. And I was just laying in my bed and I had a basketball. I couldn't leave my room. And that night I had a basketball game. I just laid in my bed and all I, I visualized where I was. I visualized me in this game. I visualized me shooting three-pointers so vividly like I was there. I'd show up to the game that night and had the best game of my life. I, I could not hit four threes in like a quarter <laughs> like it was, it was incredible, like for a third grader to be able to do that. And, and it was just merely because I stayed still and I was in my bed and I had a ball in my hand. And I, I fear when I look at my kids and I look at every, all their devices and all their distractions, they're not even going to have time to visualize because they're, because vi- they're, there's something that is taking that place nowadays. And back then I had a record player and a bed and a basketball and I was just sitting there dreaming. So it was, it was just, and I'm glad I learned that at that age, because if that didn't happen, I wouldn't be a, such a believer in it, because since then I've been able to kind of carry that, that through various experiences in life. Um, a lot of them have nothing to do with sports. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, my kids are five and seven right now, and I think about that kind of thing a lot. And just the, even just, you know, they're, they're starting to pick up ball sports and stuff. And I'm like, when I was a kid, let's say I wanted to learn tennis or whatever, I just sat, I was outside my, 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 uh, in my driveway, just hitting against the, the ball against the wall, just yeah. volleying it, little volleys for hours at a time. And I, and I used to, and I'd throw the ball, a tennis ball against the, the, the garage. And it's like pathetic even to think about this, but it's like, I used to pitch complete nine inning games that were just imaginary. Like I, I, I would throw three outs with balls and strikes. And, you know, if I got it right in the middle of the strike zone, then I would call that a hit. And if I got it around the, the edges, that was, you know, a strike. And if it was outside, it was a ball and wild pitches and stuff. And I would pitch nine inning games over and over. And that's, that, that's I mean, that's sort of hybrid visualization, right? Like I'm, I'm doing the action of, of pitching, but I'm also like, I'm, I'm really clearly imagining every aspect of the game and, and the, the impact of every pitch. And it's like, I, I just can't, I mean, 
even at the time, I think that that's a little bit freaky, but I think a lot of people who grew up as athletes or as driven, they have stories like that. I've talked to a lot of people who are like, yeah, I used to, you know, I had a, I didn't have a basketball hoop in my backyard, and I, but I'd sit there with the basketball and I'd shoot at, you know, a mark on the wall for two hours, for, you know, from four o'clock to six o'clock every day until it was supper time. And it's like, that's, that's muscle memory, but it's also, I think you, you're having a very rich visualization experience when you're doing those things. You wouldn't, if you weren't visualizing, you'd go, you'd, you'd go nuts. It would be boring, but you're, you're, you're imagining all the scenarios that you could go through. How important is, uh, is setting micro goals and someone that's struggling to run like long distances, obviously in, in like a shorter hundred meter run or something like that, it wouldn't necessarily apply. I mean, I, I mean, it may, but the longer runs, being able to pick a point, getting to it and then restarting, have you found that to be a successful practice for folks? Yeah. And I think, I mean, I, again, I hate to speak in cliches, but sometimes cliches become cliches because they're, they carry some important uh, information. It, it's like probably the number one piece of advice that I, I give to people who, especially who are starting running or who are trying to build up their, their distance is that we tend to overestimate how much we can achieve in the short term and underestimate how much we can achieve in the long term. And I think that's like, you know, I, I, as a sports science writer, especially focusing on running, I, I spend a lot of time writing about things like running injuries. Like why do people get shin splints? Why do people get this? And everyone wants to be like, it's because you're wearing the wrong shoes. It's because you're, you know, your, your hip flexor is not strong enough, or it's because you didn't stretch. And the truth is every time you study those things, it's, they, they turn out to be disappointing. And if you really push running injury researchers long enough, it's like, why do people get injured? It's because they tried to do too much too soon. So, you know, if, if you want to run, <laughs> uh, a Spartan ultra <laughs> in five months, which is crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you, you don't want to be, uh, you, you don't want to say, well, if I have to get to be able to go this many hours, then I need to get to that in, you know, you don't want to do that in two weeks. I mean, obviously the, the mere fact that you're talking about this and it's five months away means you've given yourself a long runway, but people often get lo- locked into like, oh, my friends are running a half marathon in, in, in two months. That'd be fun. I'll, I'll start doing that. And it's like, you're totally capable of running a half marathon, whoever you are, like any, any but if you're trying to get yourself there in, in two months, chances are you're, you're focused on, in other words, you're focused on the big goal rather than the micro goal. Uh, and you're, you're going to push yourself a little too hard. And, and the flip side of that is, yeah, I'm going to run that half marathon, but I could never run a marathon. It's like, sure you could probably not in six months, but if you give it a year or two, whatever, you know, give yourself enough time. If, if you, if you keep improving by 1% a week or whatever, or, or lengthening your, man, you're, you're going to be running Spartan ultras before you know it. So I, I, I guess I think there's a lot of reasons that goal setting is, is an, you know, an, an important and, and a nuanced process. One of them is that it, helps control your, your effort, helps, helps moderate your effort level and how much you're pushing, pushing on yourself so that you're not overdoing it in the short term and underdoing it in the long term. But it's also, I think, as, as I'm sure you've experienced, like it's crucial motivationally too. It's really hard to stay focused on a goal that seems unattainable. Um, and so if you can give yourself, I mean, I guess the, the, the key thing is to, is to have a balance where you have big stretch goals in the background, but you have recognizable steps to get there. And then you're, you're always working towards something. I mean, before we came on the air, right, we, we, uh, you, you were asking me if I have any, any, uh, you know, racing goals coming up. And I mentioned that I have 
I am signed up for a marathon in the fall. But for me right now, where I, I'm, I'm keeping in the, like I, I train usually six days a week for running and plus a couple of strength training sessions. And it's like, I have a, a, a cycle where I'm, I always, I'm keeping fit enough that I can get into the heavy training quickly, but I also have sort of micro cycles where once every couple of months I'll say, okay, yeah, I'm building up towards this Saturday. I'm going to see how fast I can run a 5k. Cause there has to be something that, that, that kind of focuses your attention. Uh, otherwise you, you start to just kind of go through the motions, I think. Yeah. I, I say that often that, that by having a, a goal or an event, it makes workouts, it creates, it, it takes a, it from being a workout to training and then you're training for something and it's not just like you're waking up and you're like, okay, why am I doing this? Like and that, that's what I found very motivating is that I have this goal. It's in the, f- the distant future. And I could break that up by saying, I'm sure I'm going to do other races this summer, like a 5k, a 10k. And once I have those, then I'll specifically train for that. But it's all leading up to that greater goal. And that makes every day easier to get up and to train versus like, I'm not going to go run 12 miles on a Saturday or, you know, half marathon on a Saturday by myself just to do it. Like, you know what I mean? I just, I, I personally wouldn't right now, but now I'm training for something and it makes it much more meaningful. I, I'm the same. I've, I've been a runner for 35 years now. Um, but, and I enjoy it. I know I enjoy it, but I still have, you know, I wouldn't go out and run 12 miles without some purpose. So I try and give myself that purpose. And I, and, and, you know, this, you know, getting into the sort of nuances of goal setting, there's this idea of like, to, to me, a goal is, you you want to find that sweet spot where it's it's hard to achieve. It's not it's not a slam dunk, right? Like if 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 I set a goal that like I want to be able to run a five k by you know next month, I I know I can run a five k. I've been running for thirty five years, so I want to do something where there's some doubt. And you know I think about this a lot in terms of like the way I go on vacations and stuff. Often I I'll go on backcountry trips, backpacking or canoe trips, and it's and you and it's like how how challenging should we make the itinerary? And it's like, I, I, I'm the one voting against, like, we don't want to do a trip where it's like, we, we, we paddle for two hours and then we get there and we set up camp at 11 AM and we're just like, all right, we did it. We kind of want to have a little bit of like, I don't know if we're going to make it in time you know, make, you know, we need to push to make it to, you know, I don't want to work. It's a vacation. I don't want to be like 12 hours on the trail, but I don't, I want to feel like there's some challenge. And then, you know, I think this ties into, you know, when you look into, research on flow states and things like that. There's this idea of a, of a challenge that, or of a goal that is challenging, but within your grasp, you, it's not impossible, but it's also not, you can't just roll out of bed and meet it. You want to have something that is going to be like, oh yeah, I, I, I need to go out and run 12 miles this, this Saturday. Otherwise in two months, when I show up at the start line of, of this thing I've signed up for, uh, I'm not going to be able to do it. What a great guest and episode. Alex Hutchinson, thank you so much for being on. And I can't wait to continue this next week where we get into a lot more. We dive into the technical side of VO2 Max, how to improve it. What does it even mean if you don't know what that means? And uh, the science of longevity associated with it and just a ton more. But today's episode was... uh, really profound to me as I train for this Spartan ultra race and the things I can be thinking about and doing and the positive self-talk knowing that someone like Alex that was the one thing he if he could go back in time and change 
I have the opportunity to change it. If you're running a race or you're doing anything that is difficult, that you need this self-supporting mantra, start thinking about what that could be, put in the work, and uh, I think, I know that you're gonna achieve a ton from it. I know I have already in terms of visualizing and just a ton more. So hopefully you got a lot out of the episode. I know I did again, and I can't wait for you to tune into part two next week. But until then, please like, subscribe, follow, you know what to do, all that fun stuff. Leave a comment. And just remember, you heard the story on this one about how Not Almost There was created. So now you know the power of the mind and how it could derail you or how it could push you forward, which is why I, you, me, we are not almost there. I'll see you next week.